The Start On Demand. On demand. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. I'm looking at a screenshot that I took Sunday at 7 p.m., 18 degrees. And uh, this morning, it is... Uh, I, I, quite frankly, I, I sort of wish that I'd pulled out the big Bertha parka, Greg, because <laughs> it sucks outside this morning. Wow. Yeah, I've got the in-between jacket on today. So uh, the stages of layering up and dressing for cold weather in Winnipeg has begun, Loren McNabb. Well, I just need to look for a coat that is designed for undecent-ish weather because I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed that. I feel like we have to add that to a, the weather forecast. Not bad, not good. It is... Rather on the undecent side, <laughs> not a word, but that's where we're at, people. Yes, I, I suppose it would it have been indecent. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it's that's something work. else altogether. Yeah, yeah you're indecent. right. You're right. It's <laughs> naked weather. <laughs> that would be like 42 <laughs> degrees. Scrappy weather. <laughs> All right. So hey, good morning. It is Tuesday. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on 680 CJOB. And, uh, of course, we have much to discuss, uh, Loren, regarding some of the stuff you heard in Jeff Braun's newscast regarding Rivera and the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. Kluche, of course, just asking the simple question, would I, would I still have a job if I did this? Yeah, and it's a great question. He asked that of WRHA. If, if I lied to you, would I still have a job? And her answer was no. And we'll replay that clip at 637, along with the apology and some context that was provided by Rivera, who came forward with a statement last night saying, yeah, we didn't give the right information. It was inaccurate, inaccurate, but there was no attempt to deliberately mislead anyone, according to Rivera. They said that, you know, their people were just working with the numbers they had at the time, staffing lists, hours that they were adding up, and it failed to take into account all the people that may have called in sick that day, healthcare aides, nurses, or other. So, you know, you have Rivera saying they didn't lie. I'll leave that up to the public to, to answer that question. They're, they're saying that they didn't. The VP of operations said that was not what was going on. There was just a lot going on and he was doing some math. I think we have to decide how we feel about that. And and more importantly, no matter how you feel about it, what do you do with this information going forward, Greg? Because Rivera runs more than one home in this city. It runs plenty of homes right across this country. And there are questions being asked about the for-profit, not-for-profit discrepancies when it comes to COVID in this province and how people who are in publicly run facilities seem to be doing better than those that are not. That's a bigger conversation to be had. And then what do we do with this company itself? Because... We have to take into consideration that now, going forward, are you going to take it all with a grain of salt and maybe not believe what you're hearing, which doesn't do anyone any good either? Lots of people saying this has been an issue in personal care homes for a long time. Less than stellar care, uh, care that, that people would like to see at a higher standard. So I think this is a discussion long overdue, magnified multiple times by what we're dealing with with in this COVID pandemic, but I found it fascinating. Trying not, I'm not trying to be cute here, but I did find it fascinating that on Rivera letterhead, they re- sort of referred to themselves in third person in this letter. Today, we learned that Rivera reported inaccurate information at a press conference on Saturday. And when you read it, you have to triple check, well, who is this from? Oh, this is a statement from Wendy Gilmore, Senior Vice President of we, Rivera Inc. We provided in that yes, information. Yes, yes, yes. And so it just sometimes nuance matters in terms of how much responsibility are you taking? And when you use 
language like that to, to cloud the situation somewhat. You're, even though it's on your letterhead, you're sort of, you're distancing yourself at the same time as making at a, an admission. And that jumped out for me. But I want to read a text message I got from uh, somebody that I'm very close with, someone I know very well, and um, his words are direct, they're to the point, uh, and the qualifications that he makes at the end really jump out, and I'm curious as to how many people who fit in a certain uh, political category or categorize themselves as supporting a certain type of uh, uh, politicians or not. Anyway, I'm just going to read this. The for-profit long-term care homes are a disgrace. I hope the media dismantles the province over the way they have handled this. If my mom or dad was in one of those places, I would be organizing a militia to go and get them. I am politically as conservative as they come. But this premier, health minister, and education minister have failed. Question of the day results at cjob.com. Should the province take over Maple's personal care home? And uh, this was a close one with 44.92% saying at least provide some help. 44.39% say yes. And then just under 11% say no. On Twitter, a bit more lopsided with 65% saying yes. 30% saying at least provide some help. Question of the day, by the way, brought to you by Credit Aid. Helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca. Call 204-987-6890. The company that owns and runs Maple's Personal Care Home in Winnipeg has apologized for sharing what it calls less than accurate information about staffing levels at the for-profit facility over the weekend, saying in a statement that it was not intentional, that it was simply the result of inaccurate calculations. Lots of coded language in that statement. It was at this hour yesterday that we were talking about the series of COVID deaths at the care home, a situation that grew so bad this past Friday, several ambulances had to be called in to help. That led to a series of news conferences over the weekend, including one that involved Rivera. Many questions were asked, including questions on staffing in the hours before and after those ambulances were called. A reminder, here's what Rivera's VP of Western Operations, Jason Chester, had to say. We had 13 healthcare aides out of 15 required, uh, so that uh, gave us about 65% of what uh, what we normally would experience as, as the full 15. So not long after we shared his words, the union representing healthcare aides came on our show to dispute those numbers. And we want to thank them for that and for coming forward and being so forthcoming with that information, particularly because yesterday many healthcare aides also learned they had lost one of their own to COVID-19, one of their own healthcare workers passing away following a COVID outbreak at Victoria Hospital. So we need to listen to many of these people on the ground level. And we're glad we did so yesterday because after the union representing those healthcare aides came forward, the WRHA disclosed that they had, in fact, been misinformed. Global's Brittany Greenslade explains. 911, what is the location of the emergency? They were urgent 911 calls for help, an immediate need for extra care to residents in distress at the Maples Care Home Friday night. There were residents who were extremely ill. Uh, there were a number of residents who were treated uh, at um, 
at the home and did not have to be transported to hospital after that. Some of them with intravenous therapy. The city responded to 18 911 calls that night. Eight people died at the facility in 48 hours. And now the province says Rivera, the company who operates the care home, didn't give an accurate account of staffing levels at the home that night. This um, less than fulsome disclosure on their part has certainly put a strain on our relationship. Rivera said they were fully staffed. The Winnipeg Regional Health Authority says further investigation proved otherwise. 19 health care aides were scheduled for the evening shift. 12 called in sick or said they were forced to isolate, leaving just seven on site into the evening. I am very disappointed in what we've seen uh, through, this, through this episode. The WRHA says like many places, the site has had issues with staffing. The existing staff uh, at the facility are very tired. They're working very hard um, and um, needing, uh, you know, relief in terms of, um, you know, uh, just to, 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 you know, get a break. With outbreaks at 23 of Winnipeg's 38 long-term care homes, the WRHA says they will add their own personnel to sites to oversee care, with one starting at the Maples Tuesday. We are in the process right now of pulling together a team of clinical people who will be available and on-site at our personal care homes on a regular basis, some on a daily basis, some bi-weekly, and some once a week. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. So between myself, our colleagues at Global TV, Richard, uh, a bunch of us, we repeatedly asked for an interview yesterday with Rivera. Instead, just before 9 p.m., we got a statement. Rivera offering an apology and this line, quote, although the disclosure of inaccurate information was not deliberate, it was significant and we truly regret that it has strained the positive relationship that Rivera has had with the WRHA. We also deeply regret that we may have appeared to have intended to mislead the people of Manitoba and the families of our residents, which was not the case. So a lot of didn't mean to intend to mislead uh, inaccurate information. Vicki Kaminsky in that story with Brittany said, not fulsome disclosure. So Rivera has gone on to say that the information they shared was based on staffing lists they had at the time. It did not reflect the fact that some healthcare aides and nurses had called in sick and they were just going with what they knew at the time and that they did not mean to purposefully provide, sorry, purposely inaccurate information, purposely inaccurate in quotes. So yesterday on the news, Richard asked WRHA President Vicki Kaminsky this. If I worked for you and I lied to you about an important fact, would I still have a job? Nope. So what's so different about the Rivera situation? So uh, with Rivera, we have a contract with them and we uh, have a service purchase agreement. Um, we aren't the employer for the person who gave us the incomplete information. Uh, so uh, that's the difference. Um, we are going in now to ascertain what the uh, real information is and to make sure that we don't get part of the story ever again. An immediate investigation has already been called by the province. A response team involving paramedics is now at Maples and a team from the Red Cross should be in there by Friday. But, Greg, what do we do with this information? I don't know, but there's a whole lot of different words for lie. 
that I saw and heard over the last two days. And, uh, you know, I commend Richard Cluche for coming out and using that word, obviously just adjacent and, and an idea of, well, what would happen if I lied to you about something important? But we've been lied to. Maybe there was some bad math involved. 13 out of 15 obviously does not equal 65%. Maybe the 65% was accurate. The 13 out of 15 healthcare aides is certainly not accurate as to who was on staff in this situation. And Loren, I just want to highlight something that you mentioned and reiterate it and express my uh, condolences here. As you mentioned, Manitoba's uh, Chief Nursing Officer Lynette Siragusa said yesterday that a healthcare worker has died from COVID-19 as a result of uh, one of the ongoing hospital outbreaks. She said in the past week alone, 44 healthcare workers have tested positive for the virus. And and I just wanted to reiterate that, obviously, because that's a landmark situation in our community, and it just highlights the fact that not only are these healthcare aides, the janitorial staff, the doctors, the nurses, everyone involved, not only are they working insane hours, not only are they giving it all under extreme circumstances, at the very same time, they're putting their lives and their health at risk every single time they go to work. And maybe we should listen to them then. If you're putting your life on the line, you deserve to be heard. And I'm glad we heard them yesterday. And I hope we continue to hear from everyone on the front lines. That's the very definition of the front line with someone losing their life to COVID-19 this week. We have asked Rivera again this morning for an interview. Stay tuned. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, I don't know about you, but... Given that it is cooling off, I've been sitting around looking around my apartment thinking, I have got to get this place organized. It's just, it's not junk everywhere. Like, I don't live in squalor. It's not like my home is in a state of disrepair, to put it into Newman terms from Seinfeld, but I never got organized. I've been in my apartment now for just over a year, and I still have not organized it. And uh, that got us thinking about the the basic thing like the junk drawer. Loren McNabb, do you have one junk drawer or multiple junk drawers? None of your business, Brett. I've got drawers. I got drunk junk baskets. I got junk cupboards. I've got a toy box that has I'm pretty sure no toys in it. I've got a box full of things that's supposed to be hockey sticks, but I found a candy wrapper in there just minutes ago. Yeah. Okay, I got a few. Is that what you wanted to hear? Yes. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. A box that that's supposed to house hockey sticks. Well, like the mini sticks for the kids, but it's basically where I chuck anything that ends up on the floor in the basement. <laughs> you know, just the noises, the gathering box, if you will. Okay, let's let's have a quick vote here. Okay, who are all surprised that McNabb had to admit that she had multiple junk boxes? I'll start it by saying, I vote yes. Well, I would bet that you, Kelly Moore, the the most organized person in the building at work, mm. I would suggest that maybe not so much at home. Uh, no, you would suggest right. <laughs> yeah. Glass houses, uh, although, my friend. Glass houses. <laughs> or or old wooden sheds, as the case would be. But uh, yeah, no, I, I started to call the shed uh, last year. Uh, by uh, uh, parting with a few items, and, and the process continues. But I have, and I can't remember if I've told this story before, but I have this 
mega tote. You know the great big ones, the biggest ones you can get, at uh, whether it's Superstore or Walmart or wherever? I have one of those that is chock full, and I mean chock full of Western Hockey League, International Hockey League, American Hockey League, National Hockey League, and Canadian Football League guides from God knows how far back. Why? What are you going to do with them? Now you're starting to sound like my wife. (laughs) Leave Kelly alone, you guys. (laughs) Those are cherished memories for him. They represent represent his career and the things he's done that, that are... That you just can't take away from. You need something tangible sometimes. Like when you go to the concert, sometimes you need the t-shirt that proves you were there. <laughs> well, listen. I have, a, I have a feeling there's a junk uh, room for, for Mackling here, Hitman. Well, I think it was. it's called his garage. Is it not? <laughs> you guys would be blown away if you could see my garage right now. Yeah? Yeah, it is. Uh, well, someone could actually park a car in there right now. Oh, and wow. my wife is parking her car in the garage. Oh, good for Jackie. What a what a moment this is for her. Now I had to remove another car in order for her to do that. And it's in yet another garage, but that doesn't really matter. Here's my philosophy on organization. It's merely a concept. It is a dream of dreams to be purely and completely and totally organized without a scorched earth policy. We were in the middle of the garage on Sunday afternoon. I've been working all summer to get the garage in order so that Jackie can get her car in the garage for the winter. And it's still not good enough. So I've thrown up my hands. It's plain and simply a concept to be completely and totally organized. Anybody out there who can do that, please reach out. I will pay you thousands of dollars. Jeff Braun, what about you? Because I know you, your inbox, for example, your email inbox, I think is like almost always empty whenever I see it open on your desktop. Compared to yours, it certainly is. It's not quite there yet. Uh, I, I sort of have the same philosophy as Greg, but on a smaller scale where I keep everything tidy and organized in my house, except I do have, of course, the one junk drawer and anything goes in that drawer and that way I can, you know, I don't have to feel like everything has to be put away nicely. I can have one spot dedicated to the chaos and, and it's always packed full. I can barely get it open. The only thing I ever use out of it are the scissors and uh, a never ending hunt for batteries that still work. I don't know what that's about, but but that that's for me. Everything else has been sorta of, sorta, of, you know, where it should be. I remember years ago The first apartment I lived in, where I lived there for more than one year, I lived there for five years, and I had a storage room there that I would just open the door and throw stuff in and slam the door shut and never look in it. And I had 14 garbage bags worth of trash to throw out of that room when I moved. So that was a miserable Saturday I never want to repeat. (laughs) Oh, God, I love this chat. Forte, what about you? I have a junk drawer that I have not cleaned out or really looked in since I moved into my apartment, but I also have a side table that the drawer is filled with uh, bank statements that I uh, <laughs> I have not opened yet because I do everything <laughs> online. They yeah. get mailed to me, and I, I meant to tell the bank, like, stop sending me this, but I haven't done that, and I meant to... 
I, I meant to burn them in a fire this summer. And I forgot them, so it's just, it's, it's getting bad. Not just shred them, but burn them. Yeah, well, the thing is, I don't have a shredder, so I'd have to cut it up with scissors, and there's so many of them, it would take me hours, and I just don't have time for that. Where would you have burned them? Like in your bathtub? No, go to the lake. Have oh. a fire. <laughs> okay, and I'm not, I'm just kidding on the bathtub. That would, <laughs> that's irresponsible. Now, we know people travel from all over this province to Winnipeg for medical appointments, eye care, shopping, and more. But does it make sense that someone from northern Manitoba would have to fly to Winnipeg just to pay bail? We'll let you be the judge. That's the story we're bringing to you this morning. It starts with a Leaf Rapids man who doesn't have a bank account, but did have the $200 to pay his bail. Unfortunately, a provincial agreement prevents his nearest RCMP detachment from taking that cash. And so he was put on a plane to Winnipeg to pay that bond before being pushed back to northern Manitoba. A chartered plane that cost thousands of dollars for a $200 bond. A reminder, those are your taxpayer dollars paying for that plane, Loren. And so now a Winnipeg defense lawyer says this case not only highlights the serious discrepancies between service in northern and southern Manitoba, but policies that might discriminate right from the start. And we're joined now by Ro Gupta. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking the time. Before I get into the, the question about the money, can we just ask what was the accusation against this Leaf Rapids man? So it, it's not, it, I, I just want to get into it. It's not about the accusation or whatever the charges were against the accused. We have this process in place here. I'm just going to give, a, I guess, a primer for, um, I guess, yourself and the listeners. As Canadian society that we live in, we, we have these procedural safeguards that are in place for us. So if, we're, if any of us are arrested for any crime whatsoever by a police officer, they have a duty to bring us before justice right away. Um, and so once we're brought before that justice, it's not up to the RCMP officer or the police officer to determine whether or not we sit in jail. We have this process in place that allows a crown and a defense lawyer to argue um, whether or not someone should be detained or released. Now, a justice determined that this person should be released and imposed a cash requirement of $200. Um, so that is correct. And so this is the due process that we have as Canadian society. So despite the RCMP officer saying that this person should be released, despite the Crown saying that this person should be released, the justice, obviously, after hearing submissions, determined that it wasn't appropriate to detain this person. Um, and they took into consideration relevant factors, and one being the fact that, yes, it's a pandemic right now. We are on red zone here, and we are trying to stay at home and minimize our travel. And just to emphasize on, uh, I believe, it, you know, the emphasis on our taxpayer money, I actually was just appalled at how um, ridiculous this entire system was. This is not the first time this has been raised that I went and started making some calls. And that, what, what ends up happening is the uh, client sat in cells, um, had no mechanism of being able to pay this $200. So we, we created a system where we're saying, yeah, you could be released, but it's a cumbersome red tape procedure just to get released. So what we did is we sent a, um, sorry, if I should get into the flight, but the, the flight itself was $10,509.98. That's the exact figure of that fare. And he was the only person on that flight from Leaf Rapids to Winnipeg. 
That's the total cost of that one flight to taxpayers. Ro, can you just uh, can you repeat that number again? Because I, I apologize, my exasperation interrupted you somewhat. Sorry, it's ten thousand five hundred and nine dollars and ninety eight cents, and that's just the one flight. Uh, so, you know, Manitoba Justice or you know the the government in charge right now said it's appropriate to not have any sort of mechanism in place to accept cash deposits at our RCMP detachment or at the police detachments at the local reserves that we have here. Um, but it is appropriate for two sheriffs, two pilots to fly from Thompson to Leaf Rapids and Leaf Rapids to Winnipeg to transfer this accused to the remand center. And that, that, that figure that I just quoted doesn't, doesn't cover the cost that it took for him to spend a night in jail um, only to be released the next day after the $200 is walked towards the court and the remand center um, for him to be released in Winnipeg um, where they give him, it's effectively they gave him a first-class ticket to jail um, on this one-way flight, and then they gave him an economy bus fare back to Thompson, which is not where we even picked him up from. Um, and that's and because, because, I just want to jump in here, Ro, because I think we, we've already got listeners saying, okay, come on, couldn't he have done an e-transfer? And the point here is that he, along with many people, don't have bank accounts, correct? That's not an option. Cash was the only option for him? You know, the e-transfer system just got put in place this year. And it, it, I raised this issue earlier in the year. And it, this has been the on, it's been an ongoing theme uh, for over the last decade that we realize that we don't have a mechanism to deposit cash. And so uh, after raising this issue this year, the courts, vis-a-vis uh, like the Crown, came up with this e-transfer policy. They said, hey, guess what? We saved you guys. You can now log on to your online banking and e-transfer money into our courthouse. Um, I, whoever's sitting from their ivory tower that made this policy is fundamentally missing the mark here. Many people, especially in the criminal justice system, are very marginalized. Um, they effectively do not have the means that we have. My, my clients aren't thinking on a day-to-day basis of, hopefully I have money on my data plan, because first, um, there's barely even reception in many of the northern communities. I barely even get cell reception, let alone data for myself and when I'm up there. Um, second, a lot of people don't have IDs. Uh, third, and like you said, is people don't have bank accounts. Uh, a common form of cashing checks uh, for many Indigenous people, especially in remote communities, is to go to the local grocery store who takes the checks for them because they recognize that. Um, and that just, it, it, it's insanity at its finest. Uh, and the $10,000 uh, figure that I'm quoting doesn't include the fact that we sent him on an economy bus ride to go back to Thompson. So we displaced this individual from Winnipeg to go back to Thompson. And then from Thompson, I had to go and call the sheriff's office and say he has no ride home. And they gave him a one-way taxi voucher to Leaf Rapids. So we paid for that taxi fare as well for him to go back to his community. I, the cost is astronomical, and this is just one individual, but it's a cost that we assume on a day-to-day basis. So this is what we do on an everyday basis because of, you know, this is the way we've always done things. Winnipeg defense lawyer Ro Gupta joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ro, thank you so much for, for bringing us some insight into this. Very much appreciated, sir. Thanks for having me on. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb trains. Trains, man. We know they're essential, but 
every driver in Winnipeg has had an encounter with a train. They cross busy Winnipeg thoroughfares all the time, and they are a frequent part of our traffic reports here on 680 CJOB. Yeah, they really could throw a wrench into an otherwise smooth commute, which... Let's put it this way, uh, makes our love for the locomotive in this town kind of an interesting up and down relationship, Greg. Yeah, well, when you employ as many people as you do in the railways in our city, that makes that relationship a little bit difficult at times. The construction of the Waverly Street underpass, I would suggest, has reduced one of the city's most bemoaned crossings but of course there are many others now during construction of that underpass there was a digital sign or digital signs plural in place which gave you a heads up on the timing of future trains if only you may have said to yourself or out loud there was an app for that garth rempel is ceo and co-founder of train foe and uh, joins us now good morning gareth Good morning. How are you doing today? Doing really well. I like how you've combined the word train and info to train foe. Did I say that correctly? You said it exactly right, and you got it, uh, the, the genesis behind the name exactly right as well. Yeah. Fantastic. So were you helping me decide whether or not I should head for the Keniston or Pembina underpass during the construction of Waverly? We were. Well, we hope we were. That was the intent, and uh, that was something that we saw and, and the city of Winnipeg saw is that this uh, underpass could have been a, a real, um, caused a lot of real traffic snarls, and this advanced information was meant to help you either keep going to that rail crossing, uh, knowing that it was going to be clear, or like you say, reroute to an underpass. And um, the feedback we got um, from drivers and from local businesses and residents was that it worked uh, quite well. Yeah, it gave us that heads up that we so badly needed, which is perhaps what led you to this tech. Can you tell us a bit about what you've developed, Gareth? Absolutely, yeah. So we started our company uh, about three years ago, actually, um, you know, seeing a need for this rail crossing information and how to avoid blocked crossings and the delays that it caused. And uh, you mentioned, you know, it can cause a wrench in your commute, but we also saw a need with emergency services and, and how it, uh, you know, has some big impacts for them as well. And, uh, you know, when we looked into the issue, uh, there really wasn't a lot of rail crossing information. Um, it wasn't widely available. So we had to set out uh, and get it ourselves. Uh, we looked at a, a number of different uh, train detection type sensors. Nothing worked. So we actually had to build our own sensor from scratch. Uh, and then once we had our own sensor, we actually had to interpret all this data that we were collecting. And that took us almost a year to develop uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence type software. Uh, just to interpret this data and start predicting train movements, but actually, more importantly, predicting traffic delays uh, up to 30 minutes before a train even arrives. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, by the way, for putting up that sign on Waverly when construction was happening, because I can't... If, if a train crossing could be an arch nemesis, Waverly was my arch nemesis, especially when the second train would come and there's two trains. <laughs> oh, I just am getting mad just thinking about it. I'm so happy there's an underpass there. But that sign saved my day, saved my neck multiple times. But tell us about this app. Like, Can I download it right now on my phone? Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, the app is coming. It's in uh, beta mode, and it's been one of our most requested uh, features uh, at Trainfo. So, you know, right now, we, like you mentioned, we provide roadside signs. We actually work with traffic engineers as well to alter traffic signal times uh, before, during, and after a train arrives. And we work with emergency services to, with their dispatchers to get information to them. That's what we've been doing so far, and this app is the next evolution in what we're doing. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, we're rolling it out in beta uh, later this month. And uh, we're inviting beta testers, especially uh, those in Winnipeg, to test it out. And uh, to get it, uh, you, you can go to our website and sign up. 
to get a, a sneak peek at the app, to get on our email list, and to actually get the link to you, sent to you to download the app. Um, and that's at uh, www.trainfo, T-R-A-I-N-F-O dot C-A slash Trainfo app. And so if you go to that site, you can submit your, uh, your email address. And when our uh, app is up and running, uh, you'll be notified and you can start using it and start giving us feedback on how you're using it, if it's useful, what you'd like to see different. Uh, we'll take all that feedback and, and roll it out to the general public. This is, fa- this is fantastic. The fact that we're going to have an opportunity to be a part of the beta testing if we want to be. And just this whole sense, you just got maybe 45 seconds here, Gareth. But the genesis of all this and where you are now, like the start to the finish. Tell us how different that has been in terms of where you, you wanted to go and where you've ended up. No, we're just in the middle of our journey and actually maybe just at the beginning. So, yeah, we are right now, we're deploying our, our technology in over 12 cities across Canada. We're in about four cities in the U.S. And we're just, like I said, getting ramped up to expand this even further. Um, so, you know, we're, we're growing geographically. We're growing with the products that we're providing, including this app. Um, and so, uh, yeah, for us, the journey is just beginning. Gareth Rempel, CEO and co-founder of Trainfo, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Gareth, thank you very much for this. Thank you for having me. Have a great day, and uh, hopefully you can uh, avoid those trains. Well, the website, once again, trainfo.ca slash app. Man, this would be so helpful. I, I prefer taking Marion when I go visit my dad in Transcona, but I don't even bother anymore because one like 50-50 shot of hitting a train there, and then any time saved is lost. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, before we introduce our next guest, we do have a text message that we want to read from 204-780-6868 regarding a story we brought to you last hour, Loren. Yeah, just after seven, we talked about a story that should have you questioning the decisions being made at Manitoba Justice. It involved a Leaf Rapids man who went to court. He was released on bail. That bail bond was $200. He had the money to pay it, but he only had cash. Many people don't have bank accounts, and even if they do, they don't have the ability to e-transfer because they might not have the technology or cell service. That's a fact. But this man did have cash, but under a current agreement, wasn't allowed to give that cash to his local RCMP detachment. Not his fault. So in order to get this bail money, someone within Manitoba Justice decided to charter a plane and fly him to Winnipeg to pay that $200 bond. The cost of that flight, $10,500 plus. And then in a pandemic, they put him on a plane back to Thompson. So that's prompted reaction from many of you this morning. A, we put him on a bus, sorry, back to Thompson, charged $10,000 to taxpayers for this plane. Not this man's fault. Mark texts to say, I'm as mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. This is exactly how I feel regarding the $200 bond posting issue. I can't believe how many bureaucrats' hands this had to pass through. And everyone gave it a forward nod at our local government and justice system. That $200 bail could have simply been donated to a local food bank or charity. And a receipt could have been faxed into Manitoba Justice. They go on to say we have children in Manitoba that are contracting diabetes because Pepsi and potato chips are cheaper than milk and vegetables. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out there's a much better way to spend this money. Very disappointed and frustrated, Mark writes. And I think that's a sentiment many of us were feeling. We chartered a plane to fly a man to Winnipeg to pay a $200 bail bond because we couldn't find a better way. 
not this man's fault. There's something wrong with that system there. We'll have much more on that throughout the day on CJOB. But an open letter signed by hundreds of teachers and support staff says the province's education system faces imminent collapse and they are begging the province for help. The letter released yesterday morning says the province needs to provide immediate funding or watch the system fall apart. Quote, we have tried our best over the last two months of school reopening, but the shortcomings in our system due to lack of provincial policy and funding has taken its toll on the health and well-being of our educators, school leaders, support staff and students. The letter goes on to reference money transferred to our province from the federal government. Quote, in August, $85.4 million in federal taxpayer money was provided to Manitoba, yet the province has not made it explicitly clear where and how these funds would be dispersed, and staff certainly haven't seen the impact In our classrooms, the letter states that teachers are bouncing between two or three schools daily, that principals are doing contact tracing, and that the policy for music and education classes is inconsistent. The Manitoba Teachers Society added its voice to the list of concerns, echoing the call for federal money to be used. Many questions have been asked about where that money is. Dougald Lamont is the leader of the Liberal Party and joins us now. Good morning, Dougald. Good morning. So you guys not only asked the question, you filed a freedom of information request to try to get the answer. So what's the answer? Do you know where this federal money is at? Well, the answer is that uh, there were no records found. The, look, the way this works is that the money has already... I'll just briefly... The, this is how the federal program works. The feds send half the money right away. So half of that $85 million went is, is sitting in a bank account at uh, of, of the government of Manitoba. When they spend it all, and they send back, say, oh, they, they, they tell the feds again, well, this is what we spent it on. The feds said in the next, next house. None of it has been spent, as far as we know. And, and look, this is not a surprise. Just last week when we asked the premier about it, he said he was sort of shrugging and saying, well, you know, $85 million is only a 3% of the education budget. It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big, you know, I don't, I'm not used, to, I, maybe I'm crazy, but, you know, $85.4 million is a lot of money. None of it has been spent. Um, this was supposed to be back to school money. And you know, I was having to sell chocolate bars at my kid's school in order to raise money for things like distance learning, masks, and a hand-washing station in the middle of Code Orange. So it's absolutely unbelievable that they have, to date, refused to say it. And I just want to talk about their math for a second. Because they first they said, well, it, in late August, Manitoba was the only province that had committed nothing at all in new money to making schools safe. They said, well, you can just use $48 million you haven't spent on gas for, for buses and stuff like that. That's what they told school divisions. Then they said, okay, well, we're going to add $52 million to that, but we won't tell you what to spend it on. You're just going to have to buy what you need and send us a receipt, and maybe we'll reimburse you. You Maybe we'll reimburse the school, the school division, or the teacher. And then the feds came along with $85.4 million. So 48 plus 52 plus 85.4 should add up to 185.4 million but for months they've been saying well all we're spending is 100 million and and they haven't even done that they've done about 17 and that was all supposed to be back to school stuff so we have i just got an uh i just got the second letter i've had about a covid case in the second one of my kids schools um and and people don't feel safe uh teachers are burning out the teachers aren't showing up to work and all this stuff was preventable, and we asked for it in August. You said, we have to put money into distance learning, put money into making schools safe, uh, and make sure you're hiring substitute teachers at EAs. And they didn't do any of it. 
So uh, yesterday they announced this remote learning support center. It's a $10 million investment. How on earth was this not conceived and or started three, four, five months ago? Well, I mean, that's exactly it, right? Because I had in, again, in August, at the beginning, late August, early September, I was talking to teachers who said, like, if a single kid in my class gets COVID or dies, they will never be able to teach again. And they have, they themselves are at risk. So there are all sorts of people who, who cannot go to work in the school system, teachers, staff, EAs, because they are at risk. So if you end up going and getting sick, there's a risk that they'll die. And, and, and the same is actually true. There are kids and there's all sorts of people who are in that, who are in that boat. So we, right away we said, look, if you put money into this properly and make sure the kids have, uh, the kids have Wi-Fi and kids have, you know, tablets or something like that, they actually need all, lots of people can't afford that stuff. Make sure that this happens so that you have a public uh, remote learning option. And then it should be available to anybody who wants. If you want to pull your kid out of school and you don't have a choice, or if you are sick, or if you have to stay home with your kids, or what, however it works, keep the whole system running by having a proper distance learning program. And none of that, none of that happened. Honestly, I, I, at this point, when when I look at what's happening everywhere, hospitals, um, education, business, I don't think this government thought a second wave was going to happen. I think they just because they've put all their focus into putting a ton of other bills through as if as if the pandemic never, ever happened. Dougal Lamont and, is and the leader of the Liberal Party of Manitoba. Dougal, we got to go, but thank you very much for your time. We appreciate this, sir. All right, take care and stay safe. We will not be able to honour veterans tomorrow in the exact same way many of us have been able to honor them in the past. Yeah, most ceremonies are cancelled, although you can watch a number of them online. Legions are working really hard to make sure that they have taped ceremonies that we can all take part in online. Same goes with some of those ceremonies that come out of Ottawa. But just because we can't be with our veterans in person doesn't mean we can't learn more about their contributions, past, present, and future. Brian Batter is a retired lieutenant colonel with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles. He spent 46 years with the Army, a journey that took him right across the country and beyond, and he joins us now. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. If we can, let's start with what won't be happening tomorrow. Uh, Many of our veterans are in personal care homes, which have been closed to visitors. Um, They might be aging. They might be wishing they could get out for these ceremonies. How do you feel about not having the ability to maybe honour your fellow soldiers uh, as you would have in years past? Well, this is the first time in my lifetime, and I'm 73, so it's it's very strange to me not be able to attend a Remembrance Day ceremony. Brian, uh, thank you for your service, first and foremost. Uh, my dad was fortunate enough to go to uh, Normandy, uh, years ago, he says it's the most powerful experience he's ever had in his life. Tell us about the Royal Winnipeg Rifles and their storied history, including the role that they played in the D-Day landings and at jo- Juneau Beach. Well, the Winnipeg, Royal Winnipeg Rifles were mobilized in the 1939 and went to Camp Shiloh. Went from Camp Shiloh, um, they went to Debert. And then went overseas. They trained in uh, they trained in England and part of the defense of Great Britain because things were scary at those times because the, most of the British Army lost all their equipment at uh, Dunkirk. So they were part of the defense of Great Britain. 
they trained, and then on the 6th of June, uh, about 7.58 in the morning, they landed uh, at D-Day. And uh, actually, where they landed is where the uh, Juno Beach Center is now. That's where D Company of the Royal Olympic Rifles landed. And uh, they landed with a reinforced infantry company, so they had four infantry platoons instead of three. And at the end of that battle, there was a company commander, he was the only officer left, and four stretcher bearers and 20 soldiers. And then they went on uh, for another couple of days, got some reinforcements, and at Pluto to Bassan, they were overrun by the 12th SS Panzer Division, Hitler Juden, which were all uh, Hitler youth kids who uh, formed in a special division. And uh, they ended up killing about 125 Canadians, including a large number of the Royal Olympic Rifles. They overrun them. They had tanks, and the, and the rifles did did not. And then they, the rifles carried on through the Battle of Normandy, and then and to Belgium and Holland, and they ended up the war in Holland in 1945. What was the reputation of the rifles? going into those battles and then coming out? They're uh, probably the same as every uh, Canadian infantry battalion at the time, very well trained. Uh, the Canadian Army had a policy of sending officers and NCOs to other theaters like Italy and uh, North Africa to get battle experience. So some of the people in it were had battle experience. We sent uh, some people over to the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion, uh, and several of them were uh, Winnipeg Blue Bomber players, like Jeff Nicklin, who eventually became the commanding officer of the uh, 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion, was killed in the jump over the Rhine in 1945. And there's still a Jeff Nicklin trophy for the Canadian Football League. We can't thank you enough for sharing the stories of the past, but also we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you to share a bit of your own, Brian. You spent 40-plus years in the military. I'm, I'm curious not only what made you sign up to begin with when you were a young boy, but what made you stay? The Conrad ship. We call the uh, the Army, your, the unit you belong to, the, your family, your regimental family. Uh, I was... Uh, well, I didn't have a very good young life and didn't have much of a family. So when I joined uh, underage, they became my family. And uh, all of the senior NCOs, the people who were training me, were all Second World War Korean veterans. And they became my father, so to say. And they brought me up. They taught me how, all the basics of life, how to cook, believe it or not. Because you <laughs> sew, iron, do laundry, look after yourself. So to me, it was uh, a great thing, and I don't know why we don't take, we can't do it anymore. You know. What do you mean by that? Well, get young people, and it doesn't have to be the military, but uh, you know, some sort of uh, work group, and, and and do some work for for Canada. So, I mean, you look at the size of uh, it was only 11 million people in Canada at the start of the Second World War, and just over 700 thousand people in manitoba and then the military was you know smaller than it is now if that's possible and in manitoba we had six uh army training bases we had uh 
15 Air Force Commonwealth Air Training Plan uh, bases where they taught you how to fly, navigate, uh, operate a radio. They call it the Air Dome of Democracy, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. My wife's uncle trained at number three wireless school in Manitoba, which is a school of the deaf. The deaf, he trained there. And the manufacturing plants. You know, at the end of the Second World War, the, uh, Canada had the fourth largest air force. And what do we got now? We had the world's third largest navy. So, and a lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, it was a scary time. I was talking, talking to a veteran, and up until about 43, when the Allies first started getting some victories, it was scary. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, the Aleutian Islands were invaded by Japan in 1940, in June 1942, Kiska and Atu. And uh, when that happened, uh, the Americans had to go up there. Dutch Harbor, which you see in the TV program about uh, crab, it was bombed several times. Uh, and anyways, the, they, when they took the islands back, there was a Canadian infantry Infantry brigade that assisted that. It wasn't all Americans, and one of those units was the Winnipeg Grenadiers. And the Winnipeg Grenadiers, the first battalion of the Winnipeg Grenadiers, was overrun by the Japanese on Christmas Day, 1941, uh, in Hong Kong. And a lot of people don't realize that Canada declared war on. Uh, on Japan the day before the the day of infamy from the U.S. So we declared war in Japan before the the U.S. even did. And it was, you know, a scary time. Japanese submarine uh, bombed the lighthouse in, in, off the B.C. coast, and they shell, not bombed, shelled. Um, the Germans were in the Canadian, in the Gulf of St. Uh, Lawrence. They sank 23 ships in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. People could see them being sunk from Quebec, so it was it was a scary time up until you know Italy finally got some victories. Brian Batter is a retired lieutenant colonel with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Brian, thank you very much for taking a few moments to speak to us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.